Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see all of you uh, this morning. I missed you last Sunday as I was away preaching uh, at a church down east of here. Thank you for praying for me, even as I was praying for you. Uh, but it's my joy to be back with you today and to get to look to the Bible uh, with you today. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer, as we always do, and ask him for his help during this time. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you acknowledging our desperate need of Christ and what only he has accomplished for us. Every one of us in this room is a sinner and we stand condemned before you. Uh, you are a holy and righteous God and we are anything but righteous. We thank you for Jesus and for what he has done in our place. We thank you for your word that reveals him to us. And so we do pray that as we look to the Bible, that you would come by your Holy Spirit, that you would fill me as the preacher with your spirit so that I might be useful to these dear people who have gathered today. And we pray for all of us that you would fill us with your spirit, that this time might be useful for us, that we would have eyes to see what's true about us and about you and about Jesus, and that we would have hearts that would be receptive to your truth. So we pray quite simply, that you would show us Christ from the scripture this morning. And we pray that our faith would be sustained and strengthened as we look to him. And we pray for these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, we were talking, uh, some of the folks involved with music, uh, we were talking out in the entryway where we sort of finish our music rehearsal every week. And Rob was talking about an experience that he had last night uh, with his guitar and just kind of like, had this sort of epiphany musically and was really enjoying himself and lost track of time and ended up going to bed late. I'm not saying this to embarrass Rob, but I had, I often do during my sermon prep time, I have moments, right? I had moments this week as I was studying the Bible and thinking about the text and trying to think through how to preach it in a way that would be understandable and helpful. I found my heart, frankly, soaring with joy and even filled with peace and gratitude because of Jesus. I was filled with joy and peace and gratitude as I thought about just the message of the Bible. But then at the same time, or sort of in the aftermath of that, I also found myself a little bit worked up. Those of you who know me will not be surprised about this, but I found myself worked up about just the, the ways that I even growing up, somewhat growing up in the church, the things that I experienced in the church. I am very aware of the experiences that others have had in the church. And I am aware of experiences that people have had in a general way with religion. So I was worked up, like on the one hand, like thank God for Jesus and the peace that is ours in him. And then man, how whack is the teaching that exists in so many contexts. How much bondage is there, not only in the church, but this is in the world, in every system of religion, it's slavery. The Bible, again, you've heard this many times, you can't hear it enough, the Bible is about redemption. It tells the history of redemption. It's about Jesus who accomplished that redemption. The Bible is about God and about his unswerving faithfulness to us, his people. It's about his commitment that never wavers to save the people whom he's chosen. So with all of that by way of a brief introduction, let's look to the Bible through those lenses at Micah chapter five. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, open them up to Micah chapter five. We're gonna be looking at all 15 verses of that chapter of scripture. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't sweat it. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, don't worry about that either. We will have the verses printed for you on the screen. You'll be able to follow along with us just fine. I don't know how many of you have sung A Little Town of Bethlehem in June before, but you're welcome for that. Any opportunity that we can take to just kind of explode the liturgical calendar and help people realize that it's appropriate to sing quote-unquote Christmas songs in the summer and sing quote-unquote Easter songs all the time, 
We love to do that uh, just because all of the Bible is about Christ and it's about redemption. So I hope that you enjoyed that song this morning. But now, before we go any further, I want to read God's word for us, all 15 verses of Micah chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Amen. Thanks be to God for the Bible. So I have five points for us today. Three as we make our way through the verses, and then two of them will be more or less deeper consideration of a couple of particular portions of the chapter. So five points in total. We'll begin with number one. This one will be jarringly brief. So just prepare yourselves. Point number one, judgment is coming. Point number one, judgment is coming. Verse one, the prophet speaking into a particular historical context is talking about the judgment that will come at the hand of the Assyrians, even as they will be invading not only the northern kingdom to conquer it, but also the southern kingdom to a great degree. Muster your troops. Siege is laid against us. Judgment is coming. Military conquest is coming for us, and it's not going to be good. The judge, the ruler of Israel, will be struck on the cheek, and God's people along with him. If you've been tracking with us through this book, this will make perfect sense to you. If you haven't been here for those other messages, I leave it to you. I think it's straightforward enough. Thus concludes point number one. You're thinking, brother, we're doing wonderfully well. Like this might be the shortest sermon you've ever preached. Hold on just a moment. We're going to continue point number two. Here we go. Point number two, a ruler is promised. A ruler is promised. We're going to look at verses two through six for just a few moments together. Put your eyes on verse two. You see there the mention of the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, as many will know, is the city of King David. King David came hundreds of years before this text would have been written. He lived, he was a great king amongst God's people, and God made some wonderful promises to him that we're going to consider more in just a moment. Bethlehem, though it is the city of David, is not a large city. It's a small town. So you see those words that you were too little to be even considered among the clans of Judah. You weren't even a thought amongst the people of Judah. You're so small. But from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. It's not surprising that God would bring his anointed one 
out of a small, relatively, relatively, excuse me, insignificant place. If you think about how God works in the world, he often does this. Think 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and following, how God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. This is how God so often works. But there's more. There's much more to this. This ruler who will come from Bethlehem, you put your eyes there on the end of the verse. We are told that his coming forth is from of old. His coming forth is from ancient days. A couple of things here. First, when we see this construction, his coming forth is from of old. It's from ancient days. This is referring to history, a time in history. The coming of this ruler was told long ago in time and space. We should see this most immediately as a fulfillment of God's promises to King David. If you think to 2 Samuel chapter 7, especially verses like 12 through 16 in that area, God says to David, David, when you're gone, when you die, there will come one from your lineage. There will come one who will descend from you according to the flesh, and he will be king forever. I will establish his throne forever and he will reign in righteousness. This is a fulfillment of that promise that God made to David. But secondly, when we see that the coming forth of this ruler is from of old and from ancient days, this is also referring to the fact that God had planned from the beginning to send his people an eternal king. He had always planned to send an eternal king who would establish an eternal kingdom. Jesus, in that sense, is not God's plan B. Like, I made the world and it's good, and man sinned, and now we have a problem. I need to come up with a new plan. No. This was always the plan of God, to redeem the world that would fall, and he would do it through Jesus Christ. This ruler, that finite man, could fulfill this role of being an eternal king. And no human kingdom could fill this role of being an eternal kingdom because every kingdom, no matter how great, rises and falls. It was true of Egypt. It was true of Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. It will be true of the United States if the Lord tarries. This coming ruler and his kingdom planned from all eternity, from of old, from ancient days, would be utterly unique. And as we in this room rejoice together, this promised ruler is none other than Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one of God. We read from Matthew chapter 2 today. We read in the first six verses of Matthew chapter 2, which is a book written many centuries later than the book of Micah, written by a man named Matthew. He wrote of how wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking where this king of the Jews had been born. They had had dreams and visions and they knew that this has happened and they've come to the city of God and they say, where is this king of the Jews? Where was he born? Everybody, including King Herod, is warped out of their frames. They're really worked up over this question from these wise men. Herod assembles the priests and the scribes, and he says, where is it that the Christ, the Messiah, is to be born? That's his question. And they say, well, Bethlehem. Because that's what the prophet wrote, referring to this very text that we're looking at today. The Gospel of John, chapter 7 and verse 42, reads this way. The crowd of Jews asks this question. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? This is all really significant because sometimes it's easy for us sitting this far removed from all of this to think maybe wrongly about what people understood or didn't understand as history was unfolding and the plan of God was unfolding. It's really clear when you read Matthew's gospel or you read John's gospel, that in the first century amongst Jewish people, two things were quite plain. One, Micah 5.2 that we're looking at today, this portion of Micah's prophecy was referring to the Messiah, 
The Jews clearly understood this in the first century. This portion of Micah is referring to the Christ, the one who would come. Secondly, in the first century amongst the Jews, it was quite plain that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born in the city of David. They knew that. And so this was not mysterious to the Jews of the first century when Christ came on the scene, that this is how God would bring the Savior into the world. But let's keep looking at Micah's text here. Verse three, let's put our eyes there. Israel, you can see, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Israel, in other words, is going to be given over until the right time. Namely, they're going to be given over until the birth of the Messiah. We know that conquering is coming. They're going to be leveled. The northern kingdom of Israel and its capital city, Samaria, leveled and wiped off the map. The southern kingdom of Judah, a little over 100 years later, Jerusalem, its capital, leveled, laid siege to, taken into exile, they were, by the Babylonians. God's people would be given over for a time, removed from the land. They would be given over until the right time, until the birth of the Savior would occur. Israel would be exiled, and they would be without a Davidic king. God said, I'm going to put someone on your throne, David, who's going to reign forever. Well, there's a gap from the time that the exile to Babylon happens until Jesus comes. There is no Davidic king in Israel amongst God's people. And then we read, though, the second half of verse three, after this giving them up for a time, there would be a restoration. There would be redemption. At that right time, when the Messiah would come, the rest of his brothers, namely God's people, would return to the fold. Think Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where we read that for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Right, So when we see his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, we're talking about God's people, those who would be saved by Christ would return to the people of God when the Messiah came. Let's put our eyes now on verse four. Just remember that a ruler would come. This promised ruler, Jesus, we see will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. His flock, his people would dwell secure because he will be great to the ends of the earth. He will be powerful, unlike anyone else has ever been. And he will be the peace of his people. This sounds very similar to what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 40. He says, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The shepherd is coming. We've thought already about Jesus, the great shepherd of God's people. We can't help but think about Ezekiel 34, where we read that the Lord himself will seek and find his sheep who have been scattered amongst the nations. He will rescue them and he will watch over them. This language of Micah 4 and 5 is so strikingly similar. We've thought together about John chapter 10, where Jesus, we read, is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sake of the sheep. He gives his life up so that the sheep might have life. He knows his sheep as well by name. This is a very intimate and personal thing, this shepherd king who would come to save his people. But let's continue on into verse five. In the context of this messianic prophecy, the prophecy of the Christ coming, when you read Assyria there in verses five and six, I think it's appropriate for us to see Assyria standing as a representative of all of the enemies of God's people. So at this current era in history, Assyria is the tangible enemy, but they would be representative, big picture, redemptive history of the enemies of God's people. And then we see this formula. When the Assyrian comes into our land, when enemies invade, right, we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. This kind of seven and then eight thing is just a formula that we often see in Hebrew poetry. The number seven, the perfect number plus one. In other words, what will be raised against the adversary 
shepherds and leaders will be sufficient. It will be an appropriate amount of leadership and protection in order for God's people to be safe. These leaders and these shepherds will watch over God's people in enemy territory, even as the Messiah delivers God's people from the enemy. Let's move on now to point number three. So we point number one, judgment is coming. Point number two, a ruler is promised. Point number three, a remnant will be saved. Point number three, a remnant will be saved. We're going to look at verses 7 through 15 now for just a moment. At the coming of the Messiah, the remnant of God's people, the remnant who would be finally saved, they will be amongst the nations. So when the Christ comes, the people of God are no longer gathered in their own land. They have been scattered abroad. We know this to be true for the people of Israel in the Old Testament were scattered into exile and deported out of their own land. But then we also know that God will gather his people from the ends of the earth. We know that the gospel of Christ will go to the ends of the earth. So when we see the language of the prophet here, we ought not be surprised that God's people will be scattered. They will literally be everywhere like dew that covers the ground. It covers everything. That's how God's people will be dispersed through the world, like showers of rain that cover the grass, widely distributed, and God will gather them. In the end, verses eight and nine, as we look at those verses, in the end, God's people will be exalted as conquerors over their enemies. You see this language of how they'll be amongst many peoples and they'll be like a lion kind of roaming through the woods. And when they go through, they will finally be victorious. They will tear in pieces all of their enemies. So though it will appear, and it even appears this way now, though it will appear that God's people are weak, that God's people are insignificant, that God's people are in a position of disadvantage in the world, there is something going on in reality that's quite different. All of the enemies of God's people will be destroyed. God's people will reign victorious in the end. The preeminent enemy of God's people is, of course, Satan, and he will be defeated, has been dealt the death blow already by Christ. And then all of the other enemies of God's people would be seen biblically as the seed of the serpent from Genesis chapter 3. There are two kinds of people in the world, the seed of the woman whom God would save and the seed of the serpent who are the enemies of God's people. God's people will triumph no matter how weak they may appear at points. Put your eyes now on verse 10. In verses 10 through 14, friends, we now see the Lord talking to his people and telling them about how he is going to purify and sanctify them in the era of the Messiah. He says in that day, right, the era of the Messiah, I'm going to cut off a lot of things from you. Because God loves his people, he's going to remove their idols from among them. Because God loves his people, he's going to take away anything that would pull their hearts from him. He's going to destroy that stuff. Anything that would distract, anything that would capture the hearts of his people, God's going to rip that from their hands. He's going to take away their houses and their chariots, their horses even. He's going to take away their cities and all their strongholds in verse 11. He's going to cut off sorcery and fortune tellers. They're going to exist no more. Verse 12. Verse 13, God's going to remove all of their carved images, their idols. I'm going to take your pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I'm going to take away all of your places of false worship. If you read the Old Testament and you read the story of God's people, even under the kings, there's always this constant refrain. But he did not tear down the Asherah, like these images and these places of false worship. This king did not do that. That's bad. This king did all of this good and he did all of this good, but he did not tear down the high places. Places of false worship still existed amongst God's people. And God says, look, there's coming a day when all of that is going to be no more because I'm going to see to it. 
that I'm going to remove everything from you that you are tempted to trust in besides me because I love you. I want to think more about that together in just a moment. But then verse 15 to conclude the chapter. We now see this kind of broad sweeping statement of God's righteousness and holiness about how in anger against sin, God is angry with sin because he's good. Just get that straight, right? Like it's always a hard thing for us because we think, okay, well, how could God's anger be a good thing? A perfect being who is completely good is angry and wrathful against wickedness. If he's not, then he is no longer good. So God, because he's good, because he's righteous, he is wrathful against wickedness and sin. And he says that in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on all of the nations, literally all of the peoples who did not obey. It's hard biblically to deny the reality of judgment. Judgment is real and it's hard. It's hard to talk about sometimes for us. It's hard to deny biblically God's righteous anger and wrath against sin. It's so consistently presented to us through scripture. And we need not, again, apologize for it because God's hatred of evil flows out of the fact that he is perfectly good and righteous. So if you're ever in a conversation with somebody and, and that's a hang-up, like, well, I just, I don't know that I can get on board with a God who would judge sinners. I don't know if I can get on board with, with a God who would send anyone to hell. Then a good a good question to ask, a good place to start is that, well, you know, if, if there is a God and he is good, would he not hate evil? And see where that leads you. Doesn't answer every question, but it at least can start a good conversation. But I want to move us on now to points number four and five, which are sort of like meditations or reflections from me. But I'm going to draw our attention to specific pieces of this text now that we kind of considered it on the whole. Point number four comes right from verse five. Point number four, I've entitled, Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. You can put your eyes back on verse five. This great ruler who would come from Bethlehem, who had been promised from of old, whose coming was from ancient days. He not only would stand and shepherd the flock of God and the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, he would protect his people. They would be safe in him. And he, verse five, and he shall be their peace. So I just want to talk honestly with you for a moment. I think that what I'm about to describe, I know it's been true for countless people through church history. Countless people through the history of the church over the last 2,000 years. What we're going to be thinking about together has been true. Certainly in the medieval church, the church environment that produced the Reformation, what we're about to think about together was absolutely true. I think for many who are in attendance this morning, many of these things that we're going to be thinking about are true. Not maybe right now, but at least at some point in your life, if you spend any time in the church in America, I think you will have experienced some of these things at least to a degree. So here's a, here's a statement that I'm confident is true for countless people through history and for many sitting here today. Many people have lived in and under a religion that places all hope for redemption on our wills, our obedience, and our godliness. Let me say that again. Many have lived in and under a religion that places all hope for redemption on our wills, our obedience, and our godliness. Simply and bluntly put, there is zero peace in that. It's impossible. There's no hope and there's no peace. If redemption hinges upon my will, my obedience, my godliness. That kind of a system, a religious system that exists in every other religion of the world, and exists in distorted forms of Christianity is a burden that is too great for any fallen human being to bear. It's exhausting. And it is 
absolutely futile. One of the mottos of the Protestant Reformation in Latin reads this way, post tenebras lux, which means in English, after darkness, light. After darkness, light. In the Reformation that happened 500 years ago, the light of the gospel dawned on the darkness of moralism. This matters for us today. Right? Yes, we live in the wake, in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation, and moralism is a constant problem. I think in many ways, I'm happy to talk to you at the door after this if you're interested. I think in many ways, the church today is not altogether different than the church of the medieval era in which the Reformation happened. The Reformation was a reaction against moralism and works righteousness. Both of those things are in places and in certain circles rampant in the evangelical church. Moralism, friends, which again, by moralism, I don't mean just straight up works righteousness, but we mean by that obedience for merit, obeying to earn something, performance equals like I'm better with God. He's better with me. My standing is improved if I obey. It's this constant hamster wheel of improvement. I've got to be getting better. And if I'm not getting better enough, whoever determines that standard, then everything is called into question. That's moralism. Moralism is soul crushing. It crushes people's souls. It makes it too. Here's the thing. Moralism distorts God. It makes it impossible for you and me to see God as a loving father if we are always thinking in these moralistic terms. We tend to only be able to see God as a judge, as this angry you know, judge who sits in the heavens. It's hard to see him as Abba, Father. Like, it's just impossible when we think in these terms of merit and improvement and like this kind of scheme of progressive acceptability before the Lord. So friends here, just kind of as I'm reining myself back in, if we are focused, like, and when I say focused, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't consider ourselves. Of course we should. But if our focus, if at the center of our gaze is our performance and our devotion and our experience and the like, it will lead to a continuing cycle of despair in the long term. If you're sort of looking at your life with Jesus in the backdrop, it will end up in a cycle, a loop of effort and trying and trying and falling and being crushed. But if we reverse that and we look and focus on Christ with my life in the background, it completely changes the entire situation. So here's the thing. Another saying that came out of the Reformation, also in Latin, simul justus et peccator, at the same time, saint and sinner. At the same time, justified and sinner. And because that's true for us, because we are at one time saint and still sinner, we will always be haunted by the knowledge and the feelings of our unworthiness. Always. So this, this is the great tension and the great battle of the Christian life. At the heart of it, what's the fight of the Christian life? It's this. It's like I look honestly at my life and I know that I am not worthy. I feel how unworthy I am of God, of his blessing, of his favor. I know my sin. I feel it in my bones. I know my corruption. Like this is the great crisis of the soul. It just haunts us. How can I, a sinner in whom corruption still remains, have any kind of peace with God? If you're not feeling that, you don't feel that tension, 
I don't know if you have a pulse. How can I, a sinner, in whom corruption still dwells, have peace with the God of the Bible, who is perfect in holiness, who is awesome in righteousness, who will not dwell with evil, who says, obey all of these commands perfectly and you'll live. Break one of them and you die. How could we ever have peace? So as I've just looked around, friends, I've, I've experienced this in my life when I was younger. And as I've just looked around at many churches, not just here, but all over the place, that would be considered evangelical. So often, the message is one of what might be called ongoing improvement. It's a message of ongoing improvement. Now, some of those things are a little bit easier to spot than others, okay? Real talk. Like, many who, of you who are here today who are at CBC on purpose would easily be able to spot something where the point is, okay, well, let me give you seven steps to better financial management. Or let me give you four steps for healthier relationships. Or let me give you 10 ways to improve your decision making or whatever it is. That might be easy to identify as kind of this like self-help Christianity or something like that. That's about me and my improvement. But then there's another kind that is all over the place. That sounds really good on the one hand, but it leads to despair. It's the kind of message that is focused on our personal spiritual devotion. How devoted are we? It's focused on our morality. It's focused on moral transformation. It's focused on victory over sin. How do we have victory? How do we improve spiritually? So maybe it's not as obviously this self-help stuff, but it's all about the Christian and all about how we can be better and how we need to be better and how if we're not getting better enough, there's cause for concern. So beloved, I don't say that word often, beloved. We are gathered here today to look to Jesus Christ. And I refer to you this way because I do care for you. I am burdened not only for myself as I follow Christ with you, I am burdened for us. I'm burdened for you. That you would know peace with God. That you would know peace with God that surpasses all understanding. That you would be able to stare your own corruption right in the face and know that even though that's there, I have peace with God. I want that for myself and I want it for you. So this message that exists out there of ongoing improvement cannot offer peace to a sinner. It cannot offer peace to a sinner whose conscience is wrecked and is haunted all the time by the realities of his own corruption. So what's the right way? What's the good answer? to this great question, how can I have peace with God? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism is useful. The Heidelberg Catechism comes from the era of the Reformation. In it, question number 60 is phrased this way. How are you righteous before God? How are you righteous before God? Question, answer, I'm gonna read it to you. It's magnificent. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. And all God's people say, Amen. Christ is our peace. How do we have peace with God? 
only in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I can't hear this enough, and you can't either. We need to be reminded of this reality all the time because we are so prone to forget it, and we are so prone to look to anything and even look to good stuff like the transformation that's happening in our lives. But the reality, as we assess ourselves accurately, my conscience accuses me, as the catechism said, that I've sinned against all of God's commandments. Because if you break one, you're guilty of breaking them all, first of all. James chapter 2, it's all or nothing. But if I'm being honest, I pretty much have broken them all at the heart level, right? I've never, as the catechism says, I've never kept any of God's commandments. And you might be sitting there thinking, that's a little bit extreme, isn't it? But again, this is where the law, rightly understood, is not just an external conformity reality. It's a mind level thing. It's a heart level thing. It's a desire level thing. The law condemns all of us universally. God's law is holy and good and wise and perfect and we are not. And it crushes us. So I know that I've sinned against all of God's commandments and I've never kept any of them and I still struggle with corruption. That's what we just read together. Yet, Yet, completely by grace, not my merit, completely by grace, unmerited favor, God counts me with perfect satisfaction, with perfect righteousness and perfect holiness that only Jesus could provide. Satisfaction meaning what? It means that Jesus has paid for sin. That whole like wrath and the righteous indignation of God, the fact that he's good and he hates wickedness, and he has said, I'll punish it. Christ has satisfied that. That's granted to us by faith. Our guilt has been canceled. He has taken our shame. He has borne the wrath that we deserve. Satisfaction is granted to me by faith. But also this righteousness and this holiness peace that Christ, where I have never kept a commandment, Christ kept them all perfectly. Where I have sinned against all of God's commandments, Jesus never did. And his perfect record of obedience and faithfulness and holiness and righteousness is counted to me. It's applied to me, a wretch, by faith. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus, that satisfaction and righteousness and holiness is counted to sinners completely by faith. I was having a conversation recently, sometimes in the church, you know, we love slogans and stuff, and that's fine. Some slogans are good. Like a slogan's good if it's accurate, right? But if it's not, we shouldn't use them. So there's a lot of this language in the church these days about doing the gospel or like living the gospel to which I just want to stand up and say like, I actually take great offense at that language. Only one person did the gospel. Only one person lived the gospel. And that's Christ. Now, do we live in light of the gospel? Yes. Are there entailments of the gospel? Absolutely. Do we live under the gospel? Yes, we do. Do we live the gospel? No. Do we do it? Absolutely not. We trust it. We trust Christ. We trust Christ and in him and him alone we have peace with God because Jesus is our peace. Point number five this is our last one. God relentlessly sanctifies and keeps us. Number five, God relentlessly sanctifies and keeps us. So you remember from verses 10 through 14, that whole list of things that God said, like, I'm going to take all this stuff from you. I'm going to take away your horses and your chariots and your cities and your strongholds and your sorceries and your fortune tellers. I'm taking away your carved images and your places of false worship. I'm ripping it all away. He does that, as I mentioned before, not because he's mean. He does that 
because he loves us. He loves his people. And so his love for his people is too great to not take their idols from them. We will never be lost. We will never be left by God and we will never be left in our idolatry because he loves us too much. So this is a great comfort. Because everybody in this room who's trusting Jesus goes through seasons of life that are just flat out hard. Where you you feel like you're just this piece of metal like on the anvil being just hammered away at. This is a great comfort that God does this. We need to remember this because sanctification, being grown in righteousness and holiness and being purified can often be really hard. It can be painful. It's joyful as we see it happening. And as we go through some of the trials and the circumstances and the purifying, it is tough. When we're going through hard things, it's so easy for us to think that somehow we are outside of God's favor. Oh, I'm going through this thing and it's terrible. God has somehow like forsaken me or turned his back on me. That's an easy thing to feel as a fallen human being. Is it not? I trust you've been there. I have. Like, God, what's going on? Why is it this way? Why is it so hard? Why this Brothers and sisters, when we feel, because we're going through something hard, that I'm outside of God's favor, that we're outside of God's favor, nothing could be further from the truth. I want to illustrate this with another passage of Scripture. So turn, if you have your Bibles, and I think Bruce is going to get this on the screen. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews is one of those books that I can't wait to preach through. Don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to be great when when we get to it. So let me just summarize Hebrews 1 through 11 like really quickly. The message of the book of Hebrews essentially is that Jesus is greater than everything. Jesus is greater than angels. He's greater than Moses who gave the law. He's the prophet. He's greater than Aaron, the great high priest, you know, of God's people initially. He's better than all of that. He's the fulfillment of everything that God had promised. All of the covenants that God had made, all of his promises, find their yes and their amen, their answer, their fulfillment in Christ. Redemption is over. The sacrifice was made once and for all, and Jesus sat down because there's nothing left to do. We now can boldly approach the throne of grace in Christ. We now even gather together like this in the full assurance of faith. Because of Christ, chapter 11, you get this, what's often called the hall of faith, where all these people are listed. Notice it's not the hall of faithfulness because many of them lived crazy lives, but they trusted God. Their morality is really not something we want to imitate often, but their faith is real. So that's chapter 11. And then we get to chapter 12. And sometimes people who are otherwise faithful expositors of scripture utterly lose their senses when it comes especially to verse 14. We're going to get there in a minute. Let me summarize Hebrews 12 for you. Verses 1 and 2, we learn about, we hear about, running the race that's set before us as we look to Christ. Look to Jesus. He's the author, the founder, the perfecter of your faith. Cast off anything that entangles you. Look to Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, right? He saved us. Then, verses three and following, God is a loving father who disciplines his children. The writer of the Hebrews gives us the analogy of a good earthly father. We've all been disciplined by a good earthly father. How much more so would our heavenly father discipline the children he loves? Right, that's the analogy. But now verse 10, we'll look specifically at verse 10. For they, earthly fathers, Disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, right? They maybe could have erred. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that so that we may share in his holiness. He is sanctifying us. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's hard. 
but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So discipline's hard and it bears fruit. Therefore, verse 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Because we're looking to Christ and we're removing everything that entangles other than looking to Christ. And God is a loving father who disciplines his children and it produces holiness in us. Bear up under the discipline of God. That's the point. Take comfort and take heart when God is disciplining you because he is making you more like Christ. He's not doing this because he's angry. He's doing this because he loves you. And then verse 14 is not a threat. I could, I'll state my ministry on it. Verse 14, if preached, you better be holy or God's gonna damn you is flat out wrong. It's a message of comfort. Discipline is hard, brothers and sisters, right? And God is sanctifying you. He is changing you. He is preparing you for heaven. So bear up under the discipline. Press on because God is doing good things. So... When you're encountering those really hard seasons, this text says you being outside of the favor of God has nothing to do with this. You are precisely within God's favor. You are his child and he's disciplining you because he wants you, verse 10, to share in his holiness. That same holiness without which no one will see him. (laughs) There it is. I could talk for a long time about this and we'll get to Hebrews another time. The point of the matter is, brothers and sisters, God loves you so much that he ordains all things, suffering and trial and purification in order to make you more like Christ. It is a message of hope. It is a message of comfort, not a message of threat or condemnation. God is our father, no longer our judge. His love for us is so great that he will not allow us to be lost. And his love for us is so great that he will remove all of our little idols from us. Because we make them all the time. And Jesus, God's son, is both the promised ruler who would come from Bethlehem. And he is your redeemer and mine. He is our peace. And so now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. May that be so. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and we ask along with the Apostle Paul who penned those words that you, through your Son, would give us peace at all times and in every way. We pray that you would strengthen us in our inner man so that we might comprehend with all the saints the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would comfort us as we encounter difficult things in sanctification or as we encounter even our own corruption. We pray that you would remind us of what Christ alone has done. We pray that even in our minds and hearts and in our experience today that we might feel and know peace with you. We pray that you would be with us now as we come to the Lord's table. Use this means that you have given us to impart peace in our hearts as we rejoice over what Jesus has done. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that in him, sinners like us can be granted satisfaction and righteousness and holiness by faith. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.